We're taking a wee pause from our Creed series this morning, so we started that last week. We just wanted to honour Dale in giving him a space to bring what, what he felt he wanted to bring for us this morning. So if you want to catch up with our Creed series later on, you could come back this evening or do listen on podcast. But Dale, great to have you. Thank you, Hannah. Thank I you. really appreciate that. I'm nervous. I'm so nervous I'm going to kick that over. And um, so I hope, you can under- I hope you can understand my accent. Um, like what could go wrong in, because we all speak English, so what could go wrong? You know, I, I saw you have a daily devotion called Rooted. As in Australia, if your, t- your football team is down 3-0 and there's five minutes to go, you're rooted. And your team is rooted and it also has sexual connotations as well. So don't try and take that kind of application to Australia. You just want to rebrand it if you're going to do that. And also, if you come to Australia and you go to a coastal town, and, uh, and the restaurant says, no singlets, no thongs. Um, a thong is a flip-flop, okay? So it's got nothing to do with the underwear that you're wearing. And uh, so, like, we could, if I get anything wrong today, yeah, I'm just, I'm asking for humble, you know, for, uh, for permission in advance. Uh, Carl, I think you're, you're very brave having an Australian on the platform. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, Rich Robinson, I know Rich is on your team. And so I've been in relationship with Rich for a number of years and at, uh, at the church that I'm leading where we're seeking also to in- actively engage our, our core at our core, we speak about uh, being disciples that multiply, that anything God has done in you should never stop with you. You're not a bucket, you're a conduit. So anything he's done in you should be done through you. And so uh, by God's grace, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, we've uh, across Australia planted 50 churches, that was 5-0, and, uh, and, um, and at, at the main uh, ch- church where I'm based, in the first seven months of this year, we saw about 250 or 260 people make a first-time commitment to Christ. So we're rolling with the momentum that God has, has got us on right now, and, and we're particularly uh, encouraged by that, and we want to keep going with that. Can you remember when you, when you learned how to ride a bike? Can, can you cast your mind back to when you, ride, you learned how to ride a bike? Like how many crashes you had learning how to ride a bike? You remember the, like the fro- I remember getting frozen arms. It was like, like I'm going straight at a tree. And you know, oh, at best I could do a wiggle, but like I, I couldn't turn. Or, or for those of you who have children, teaching your child, Edie and I have four children, and teaching your child how to ride a bike, like running along, holding onto the seat and holding them up. But there's that point where you've just got to let them go. If they're going to learn how to ride a bike, you've got to let them go. And, and invariably they crash. And I remember one of our children saying to us when I was trying to teach them how to ride a bike, they said, I'm never going to be able to ride a bike. And I said, no, yeah, you, you really will, but you've, you've got to get up again. Okay. Okay. The mic's a bit hissy. Okay. There we go. Is, is that a bit better? Okay. Sorry about that. It wasn't mean to be hissy. And, um, but so we said to our children, you've got to learn how to get up again. You've, you've got to get up. Now, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 primarily. But Psalm 51's got a context to it, which comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and, uh, and, and chapter 12. And so if there's a really simple thing I'm wanting to share with you today, it's that you've, you've got to get up again. Because as we go through life, and as much as the Bible says, you know, we're, we've all sinned, we've all, all fallen short of the glory of God, and all of us like sheep have gone astray, you know, each turned to our own way. And and unless you've kind of bought into a theology that says that you are perfect and you therefore can live perfectly, and which is a, a pretty dangerous theology of denial, really, about the realities of what's happening in your heart and mind and what you're doing with your life. So unless you are Jesus walking on water in our midst, it's lovely to have you with us. 
and you are deceived. I just would like to point that out to you at this point in time. But, um, so, so all of us, at certain points in our lives, are going to fall flat in our face. And we've got to learn how to get up again. And so this little uh, passage from the, from the Bible that's going to take us to Psalm 51, we read this in 2 Samuel 11. It says, in, uh, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, which is a funny statement all in itself. Imagine that. Like it's spring. Okay, Scotland, who are we going to go to war with? You know, like it's spring. Let's go to war with somebody. Anyway, it was spring of the year when kings normally go out to war. Uh, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Uh, they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind uh, in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, or who enjoys that one, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. Now, he positionally right now, he is the king of the United Kingdom walking around on the roof of his palace. He has been a shepherd boy, the younger, youngest of Jesse's sons, and he's gone through that whole phase of poet, musician, uh, to, to um, um, military leader, rise and rise military leader. He ends up becoming the king of the United Nation. He's now on the roof of his palace. Like this is, it's the rise and rise and rise. And at this point in time, uh, he has seven wives and ten concubines. He's not short on sex. Carl, am I allowed to say that? I think he's not short on sex. Seven wives, ten concubines, like David's. It's, and look what it says. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath, and he sent someone out to find, uh, to find out who she was. And he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife, the wife, the wife of Uriah uh, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. He had sex with her. She had just completed her purification rites after having a menstrual period. Uh, then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Brief and to the point. Now, you might not have done what David has done before, but you will have felt what David feels as we move into this text. And um, so David, in, in the midst of his power and his ascension, he loses his boundaries. And uh, so what do you do at this point in time? Well, what David did was try to cover it up. And uh, so, so it says, mm-hmm, um, David sent word uh, to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. Now Uriah would have felt very privileged and honored that the king has sent for him specifically from, from the war zone. Yeah? And so when Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along. and how, you know, How's the war going? How's it going with the war? And, uh, and then he told Uriah, go home and relax. So David even sent a gift uh, to Uriah uh, after he'd left the palace. So he's sending him home with, uh, I'm going to suggest he's sending him home with a bottle of wine. And, and, but it says, Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard with a gift uh, from the king. Uh, but when David heard that Uriah had, uh, had not gone home, he summoned him and asked him, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Why did he want him to go home? He wanted Uriah to sleep with his wife as kind of a fudge on her pregnancy date. That's why he wanted him to go home. 
And uh, so, so why don't you go home after you've been away for so long? And Uriah replied, oh, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in the tents and Jehovah, my master's men are camping out in the open fields. How can I go home and wine and dine and sleep with my? There's the wine. That's what I thought. That's what the king, whatever gift, maybe he gave him roses. I'm not sure. <clears throat> I swear that I would never do such a thing. He's such an, an honorable guy. And so we'll stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. So David has another God. And then David invited him to dinner and he got him drunk this time. And even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. And again he, again he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guards. So what does David do? David sends Uriah back to the battlefront with his own death certificate. And uh, so the next morning, David wrote a letter to Job, gave it to Uriah to deliver. Uh, the, the letter instructed Job, station Uriah at the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so he'll be killed. And so Job uh, assigned Uriah to that spot close to the city wall where they knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. A little bit of collateral damage there as part of David's fudge and cover-up. And, uh, and so verse 25, it says that Job sent a letter back to David. And David reads the letter. He says, well, tell Job not to be discouraged. The sword devours one this day uh, and, uh, and another tomorrow. Fight harder next time, con- conquer the city. But in profound contrast, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. We see, we get that sense of how profoundly lost David is in the midst of all of this. Well, God's noticing this whole deal. And so he ends up sending uh, Nathan the prophet to David, a friend of David's. And Nathan tells David a story about a guy who's got all these sheep and, and he has a visitor come to him, but his neighbor has one little lamb that he loves and treats like a child, the text says. And, and the guy takes that one lamb and slaughters it for the feast. And David, it says, got hot angry about it. He says, that guy ought to die. And he ought to make multifold recompense for, for, for what he's done. And, uh, and then Nathan uh, responds and, uh, with God's word, because Nathan says to him, you are that man. And then he goes on. God now speaking first birth through Nathan. He says, I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much much more. Like God is not being stingy with him. I'd have given you much, much more. And so verse 10 says, from this time on your family will live by the sword because you've despised me, despised me by taking Uriah's wife uh, to be your own. Verse 13, David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die of this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. The child that Bathsheba was pregnant with. Now, that is the context of the psalm that we're about to read. Psalm 51. We know it's the context because David wrote it right in the front. And I want, just, I want you to just pause here and notice this with me. How many people know what David's done? Bathsheba knows. Nathan the prophet knows. David knows. God knows. But that's it. It's a pretty close circle. And while scholars uh, say we don't actually know when David wrote this psalm, we know what he wrote about because he puts it right here at the front. Uh, I'd like to suggest to you this psalm is potentially written as a cathartic exercise for King David as he himself gets up again. 
And so I think it gives us some phenomenal insights because while you haven't done necessarily what David's done, we've all felt what he feels at this stage because you cannot have gone through life without failing. It's not possible. All of us know what it's like. Like the little kid with his hand in the jar and, and, and his mom said to him, you know, no more cookies before dinner and you're in real big trouble if you take another cookie. She hears the cookie jar rattling in the kitchen. She goes in, he's got his hand in the jar. What are you doing? He, he looks at her and with speed of thought, he says, I'm getting you a cookie. And like, it's so impressive, his agility. But you know, you know the feeling, you know the feeling. You're done, you're caught. And, and so this is a phenomenal thing. That David, look at this, for the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Let's put that into the national hymnal. So everybody can read the context of what I've done and how I got back up again. Like that is phenomenal, isn't it? Like you want to do that? Just, just think, what's your greatest failure in your life? Like some of you might have committed adultery and and, you, and, and if you haven't done it physically, you will have done it in your, in your heart and in your mind. Jesus said, if a man looks after a woman lustfully, lustfully he's committed adultery in, in his heart. And that's not gender specific, of course. So women, you can be wrapped into that one as well. And so how many people here have not committed adultery in their heart? How many people haven't killed with that kind of anger and hatred that Jesus spoke of? And like, really, we've, we've, we've done it all. How many, how many people this week have looked at pornography? Don't put your hand up. How many people this week have stolen from God because you don't honor him with your resource? You say it's mine, not his, and you keep it for yourself. How many, how many people here have gossiped this week? How many people have torn a shred off somebody else? How many people have shown uh, prejudice or pride or like, you name it? Like what if we are a church of frail and broken people? If you, if you feel frail and broken, welcome, you belong. No perfect people allowed through the door. So David names this psalm and he, 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 he names his sin. And so let's, let's see, see what he does. How do we get up again after we've failed? Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. David opens, his get up process begins with the confidence that he's coming to a good God. This statement about because of your unfailing love and your great compassion is from, Psalm, uh, is from Exodus 34, verse 6. Both those phrases God used to describe himself as he passed by Moses when Moses was in the, uh, you know, was in the cleft. And, and so this was in David's scripture already, but he was convinced he's coming to a good God. Now, it's really important. At your point of failure and when you felt you're falling flat in your face, it's really important to realize you come to a good God. Because no one at that point in time wants to come to an auditor. No one wants to visit the principal's office. I can remember as a primary schooler one day coming out from school, and I, wasn't, I was careless, I wasn't deliberate, but I, I kicked a stone, and it bounced up and banged really loudly off the door of a passing car. Like I was, as, I was as horrified as anyone on what I'd just done, and this big hand went straight onto my shoulder, and I looked up, it was the principal of the school, and he said, I'll see you in my office tomorrow. I like I was dying, I, like all, all night and all next morning. I was so stressed. I'm going to go to the principal's office because I have done something wrong. I kicked the stone. I bounced off the door of a car, and like it was really big. And if the idea of coming to God is like visiting the principal's office, you will hide for as long as you can, and you will stay down as a result. 
You know, the, the, the Bible speaks about the devil being a tempter and, and the whole nature of temptation. It can either be the devil or one of his cohort. It can be our own desires. But the very nature of temptation is to do that which we shouldn't do. It's got this like magnetic attraction to it and, and we have this like, kind of conversation around everyone else is doing it, it won't matter and no one else will know and I'm tired and I'm stressed, my barriers are down and lots of stuff and there's this attraction. But at the point we cross a line that we shouldn't cross, the devil goes from being attempted to being an accuser. He says, you pathetic, hopeless, useless individual. Don't you think you can come to God now after what you have done? And, and having kind of the, the whole swing around from go, 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 go to accuse, accuse, accuse. And at that point, when you feel at your lowest, condemnation and conviction are very similar but slightly different in a directional sense. Because condemnation will push you further away from Jesus and conviction will draw you to Jesus. They both start with what you did was wrong. The condemnation will kind of keep you down for as long as it's possible. The conviction will be, come to Jesus. The Holy Spirit will convict, the, the devil will condemn you. And, and, and I just wonder, which voice do you listen to directionally? For some of you, you've, you've dragged it. Did you, uh, have you read Pilgrim's Progress? You know, where the, the whole backpack thing. Have you seen the movie The Mission? It's an old one now, uh, but, but a goodie of a, of a, a fighter in South America. And he's killed so many local indigenous people. And, and he's had this kind of like conversion experience. And he's dragging his entire armory, shield and helmet and everything in this big net. And he, he drags up a big cliff. For a lot of people, they're dragging around the, the sins of your past for some, will destroy their today and reshape their tomorrow. Like, is your, is your past defining your today? Is, what's that little conversation that happens back there inside your person? There's an opportunity that presents before you. And what, what's the conversation like that takes place? And if you're anything like the people I know in Australia, we, we have a conversation which frequently has a fearful or negative edge to it as our internal dialogue. And we, we, will, we will lose what the potential of today and we'll reshape our tomorrow on, on that basis. So David's beginning point is that his confidence is coming to a good God. He loves you. He loves you like no other. Scripture says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was his great pleasure, the Scripture says, to redeem us in Ephesians. It says that. So he, st- he starts out realizing he's going to come uh, coming to a good God. But watch what he does here. He, he starts to, having kind of taken ownership of it, this is what happened when I sinned with Bathsheba. He now, uh, having kind of taken, um, he's named it. He now, look how much he takes ownership of his sin. Wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. Very personal. You know, very, you know, it's my, my rebellion washed me from my sin and my guilt. Sometimes, while we collectively are prepared to acknowledge, you know, like in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin around us, and, and we get that sense of, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I feel safe as long as I'm in the pack. But when was the last time? Before God, you personally owned your sin. 
When was the last time in his presence? You humbly, you bowed your head and you named it with him. God, this is what's happening in my heart right now. And, 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 you, and you put a specific name on it and, and you, you, you processed it personally with him. Because David really is only, and all the way through to verse seven, let's read, against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. You approve right when you say, uh, in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. And then he, so here's his transition point. So having owned it, named it and owned it, he, he now goes to a point where he needs to receive something from God. And I want to say this, if you're ever going to learn how to get up again, you have to be prepared to receive forgiveness from God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is, what are the next two words for those of you who, some of you know this, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful, that means he's always going to do it, he's faithful God. He's just, it's a justice issue. You cannot pay for a paid fine. You get a parking ticket around here, you go to the local council, but someone got there before you and they paid it for you. You go there with your parking fine and they say, I'm sorry, John, it's been paid for already. You can't pay for it again. It's already paid. And when, when Jesus hung on the cross and he shouted out, well, you hear it in English, it is finished, or tetelestai I was the language. They, that is what they stamped in Roman times on paid bills. When it was paid, paid in full, tetelestai. They stamped it. Jesus shouted out, it is finished. Paid in full. It's done. And so if we confess our sins, there's the personal ownership. You go and you, you take ownership of it and you name it before God. He is faithful. He'll always do it. And just. It's a justice issue. Christ died for your sins if your trust is in Jesus. You could be a spectator to that. It's like Panadol has been created and the potential of a headache exists but you might not ever allow a panel to do what it's designed to do for your headache. Yeah? It's just there. You're a spectator of it. That's a, I don't know where you're at in your journey uh, today uh, with Christ, but many in this room will know the reality. You've stepped onto the playing field and you say, yes, that's true for me in my heart. Christ died for my sins. It's a justice issue. God is both just and the justifier, it says in Romans. He's done what needs to be done to declare us to be forgiven. So David now moves into his own needing to receive from God. He's owned it. He's named it. He's now receiving from God. Purify me from my sins and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. New Testament says the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. If there are any people on planet earth who should have the capacity to walk tall and free of guilt, it should be Christian people. Because Christ has died for our sins, we're free. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 8 1 says, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, in Jude, many of you all have this memorized. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, that's in this life. Yeah, thank God for the Holy Spirit. The Word of God keeps us from falling. And to present you faultless before the. Ah, oh, darn it, I just said what I wanted you to say. And to present you how? And to present you 
faultless. Yeah, I already fed you that line. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You're going to arrive faultless. Faultless. And yet for some, the whole the notion, oh yeah, sure, Christ died for my sins, but they want to still drag it around in a net behind them. Oh, pastor, you don't know what I've done. Like, what is the historic event that now defines you by way of failure? Was it your unfaithfulness to your partner which led to a divorce? Was it your, that outburst of anger or those repeated outbursts of anger that spoiled your relationship with your child and even walked away from the faith as a result of it and you now carry that as a guilty feeling in your heart perpetually? Is it that addiction? Is it that you, like you're, you're spending more money on online gambling right now or porn than you'd ever invest into something good like the work of the kingdom of God? You know, like what is it? What's the sin that's kind of defining it? It's, it's, and it's... And you're needing to drag it around and it's going to spoil you today and, and redefine you tomorrow. But the, the Bible says the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. See, we've got to figure out how to get up. And if you are actually going to get up, you're going to have to come to terms with the fact that you need to actually to receive from God his cleansing. You're going to have to shake it off. Purify me from my sin and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me, my, give me back my joy again. I tell you what, nothing quite like a failure to rob you of your joy, yeah? You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a loyal spirit inside of me. So there is this restorative work for us to actually receive from God. And you might actually need to still yourself. Because if you're allowing your past failures, or even the present reality of your failures, to define you, you're going to have to pause, confess it before God, and then allow Him to wash you clean. The sacrifice of the sinless Son of God is enough for your failure. It's enough. God has done all that needs to be done. But you need to be prepared to, re, uh, to, uh, to, re, to receive it. He says, don't banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Legitimate for him to pray that. That's not really what a Christian needs to pray because we're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of our redemption. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. God, you need to do something inside my heart. <clears throat> now look what happens. So he's owned it. He's declared it. He's owned it. He's received, he's received it. He now starts to make declaration about his future. Then I will. Then I will. When was the last time you made a declaration about your future? Because of this good God. Because of his faithfulness and his love and his generosity to me. And and because I'm going to receive this washing and this cleansing. Then I will. He now goes from transgressor to teacher. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and I'll return you. Forgive me for shedding blood, a clear reference to Uriah, O God who saves me. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. So he goes from prisoner to praiser. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You don't desire a sacrifice, I would offer it. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. Just catch that. In your brokenness, which brings with it a contrition and a humility, when we come to that point before the Lord God, 
He takes delight in us at that point. He's not the auditor. He's not the principal with a belt in his hand. He is, he's loving you at that point and wanting to lift you up. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You'll not reject a broken and a repentant heart, O oh God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This is that which he's overseeing. Then you will be pleased with the sacrifices offered in the right spirit and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. He is now making declaration about the future. Now, if you've got to figure out how to get up again, you're going to have to own it, name it, receive it, and then make your declaration in the presence of God. Make your declaration uh, about your future. And so in, in 2 Samuel 12, <clears throat> David's been flattened his face because um, this child, as God said, the child's not going to live. But he thought, just maybe, just maybe God will change his mind. And he's flattened his face uh, for a week and he's fasting and he's not washing. And everyone's really freaked out because then the child dies. And uh, when David heard them whispering, he realized what had happened. Uh, Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. And now, please read these next four words with me. Then, hello, then David got up. He got up. And if you don't know your Bible well, and if you want to have that sense of the incredible potential of God making good out of the most terrible scenario in your life, you've heard of King Solomon he wrote a significant part of the Proverbs. He wrote the Song of Solomon. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He's kind of celebrated as one of the wisest guys, even though he kind of crashed his life late in the peace. You know who his mum is? Solomon's mum? Bathsheba. He is the next child that David has to Bathsheba, is Solomon, who goes on. And if you, if you ever wonder about God's redemptive potential, about the messes that we create in our lives, just look at this scenario but my dear brothers and sisters, we've got to figure out how to get up. If you're ever going to reach your full potential in Christ, you've got to figure out how to get up. If anyone in, on planet Earth is going to be able to walk around feeling free and clean, uh, where, where we don't have to, uh, have, to, have to be defined by a sense of guilt of past failure, it should be Christian people because... God loved you enough to have Jesus Christ die for you and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And one day, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you, say it with me, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Well, how about we start living our lives in that way right now? Have we stand tall and walk free carry this good news that's possible to be right with the living God and as we learn how to get up again we'll even be able to help others to get up as well would you please pray with me <clears throat> so our father in heaven with this gathering of people today and you know everybody's story Father, you know those for whom this is such a timely word because their failure is defining them. Well, Father in heaven, I pray now by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to take it to heart what it looks like to get up again. 
Father, I pray even now, even now, that some can be confessing their sins, they can be naming it in your presence. And even now, that I pray by your Holy Spirit, hearts would be opening to receive your forgiveness, your washing and your cleansing, your healing and your restoration. Father, I pray that people will hear a declaration over them. This is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love, and them I'm well pleased. And I, I invite you right now, if you know the reality about what I've been speaking about today, and you know that Jesus is the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, and you say, yeah, that's true for me already. I invite you right now to pray with me for anybody who might be in the room who's uncertain about that as a reality. Let's just fill this place with prayer right now. If you're uncertain, I just want to briefly speak to you. Please understand this. You are loved by God. He's demonstrated it in Jesus. He's done everything that it can be done. Jesus did die on the cross for your sins. And you have an opportunity to receive him by faith. And sure, you're going to have to turn away from doing it your own way and he'll do some corrective stuff, but it all starts on the inside. But right now, I want to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And in your own heart of hearts, like you might even pray a prayer along this line where you say, well, Lord God, I want to say thank you that you love me and thank you that you've demonstrated that love by having Jesus die on the cross for my sins. And yeah, I can identify with that. I'm as broken as the next person. And so, Father, right now I ask you, please, come to me. I want Jesus to be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. And I ask you to do it now as best I know how. I reach out to you because I believe you're reaching out to me. So make it real in my heart, I pray. And just while all heads are bowed and all eyes are closed... If that is the prayer of your heart, if, this, if you've come up to this point in your journey, you go, I think today's my day. I think I'm crossing the line today. If that's you and you are crossing the line today, like this might be so countercultural, but if that's you, I want you to acknowledge that to yourself and to me and to God by lifting your face. And I'm going to invite you actually just to kind of raise your hand. I'm going to count to three. And if that, you might be the only person You might be the only person, but you know God's doing something inside you right now. So if that's you on the count of three, I invite you to lift your gaze and raise your hand and actually catch my attention. Say, yeah, that's me. Today I crossed the line. I'm asking Jesus to be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. Are you ready? Is that you today? One, two, three. Is that you? Just right now, lift your face and raise your hand. Look, look at me in the eye as well. Bless you, ma'am. That's awesome. Right up the back. Bless you, ma'am, too. Just you'll see when I look in your section. Bless you, too, ma'am. That's awesome. Just give your hand a raise if that's you. Yeah, you too, ma'am. Down there. Yeah, look me in the face. That's wonderful. So look around. up the back in the balcony. Good on you, buddy. Young man. That's awesome. Sir, at the back there as well. Yes. Good on you, mate. That's excellent. Is that you right now? Just so you go, yeah, that's me. That's me today. I'm asking Jesus to be the forgiver of my sins, the leader of my life. I don't want you to miss that. Just right now, quick, raise your hand. Go, yeah, that's me, because I want to pray for you right now. Over here, bless you. Look me in the face as well. Yeah, that's great. Up there in the balcony.
So Father in heaven, for each person who today seeks to respond to that prompting of your Holy Spirit, I want to say thank you. And I pray you make it real in their hearts. Father, help them, I pray, right now, to have hearts open wide to you, that they can take a profession on their lips. Jesus is the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. Now, you might even want to say that, and you even use your lips if you want to. Jesus is the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. So may God give you grace. And for each one of you who responded today, please tell somebody before you leave. And I'm even going to suggest Carl will have a free New Testament for you. I don't know if he does, but he'll find one. I will pay for it myself if he doesn't, but he will. But I will pay, Carl, if you don't. Okay, we have, well, I want to have a free New Testament for you just to help you take your next step, okay? So make sure you tell someone. So Lord God, we're grateful. Grateful we can be together today. Thank you for speaking to us on how we get up again. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. God's people said, amen. Do you celebrate when someone responds to Jesus? I think we should today. God bless you. That's awesome. Thank you.